Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Dr. Grossman, an OB-GYN and CEO of Medicines 360, and Margot Fonestock, Vice President, Strategic Development at Medicine 360. And today we are talking about contraceptive care during COVID. Hi, Dr. Jessica Grossman and Margot. Thank you so much for being our guests today. So first, could you each provide a little bit of background about yourself? Please call me Jessica. Whenever anyone says Dr. Grossman, I think they're talking to my dad. So Jessica is totally fine. So um, as you guys noted, I am an OBGYN by training, although I must admit that I have never practiced and I really respect those people who are in the trenches, treating patients every day. It's, it's amazingly hard work. I actually took a little bit of a different path and I started working in medical technologies and I worked in a whole bunch of different companies early on in my career. Eventually, I started my own company in women's health based on an invention that I had for a new surgical device to treat fibroid tumors, which is now FDA approved, which was exciting. It took like 15 years to get it there. And so, you know, I've always been working in women's health mostly, or I would say for the last 10 years or so as CEOs of various companies. I've been the CEO of Medicines 360 for the last five years. And I'll tell you just a, a little blurb about us, if that's okay. Medicine 360 is is a very unique organization. We're a nonprofit global pharma organization. So we are about patients, not profits. We're a 501c3. But also, strangely enough, we're a pharma company. We have a marketed product. And a lot of the mission work that we do is trying to make sure that cost of medicines for women doesn't stand in the way of them accessing care and stand in the way of health. And so a lot of that does have to do with access to contraception. And we'll get into that in one minute, but I'll let my colleague Margot go ahead. Great. Thanks, Jessica. So I got interested in women's health when I was in college. And I won't say how many years ago that was, but it was a while. And at the time, uh, I went to school in Los Angeles. And at the time, the women's health was really getting recognized as something that had been neglected. And it was being highlighted that women weren't being included in clinical trials. There was a lack of data, really, and research about uh, women's health and how other factors impacted women's health. So I, I really became interested in that. And although I was an English major, it was not linked to my, to my major in college. But I, because of that, when I went to, after college, I went to the Peace Corps and I did two years in Mali, which is a country in West Africa. If you've heard of Timbuktu, it's in Mali. But I went and lived two years in a village in Mali and really went in interested in women's health and basically came out just kind of obsessed by women's health and um, the challenges that women face. The the mother in my village, the woman that I considered my mother when I was there, had had 10 pregnancies and she had five living children. 
And so that just, that was typical in the village. And I thought about becoming a doctor (laughs) or a provider like the three of you. I also recognized I wasn't the strongest science student. And so I ended up studying public policy as a way to come at women's health and realizing that policy and the policies that we implement as societies, including in a country like Mali, really do affect the way women access and use services. And then I've done many things over my career. I did a lot of policy work for about 10 years, contracting for government agencies, advising Medicaid agencies on how they paid for services, and then also advising African governments on how they paid for um, or how they offered family planning services in many countries in Africa. And then I had the privilege of working for a foundation here in California for many years where we were supporting reproductive health organizations in countries, mostly in Africa, like the Planned Parenthood associations of each of the countries in, in, in Africa. So that was really very rewarding and exciting work. And I've been working with Jessica for about a year at Medicine360, trying to figure out our, our next five years of uh, what we're doing as a nonprofit pharma, which, as Jessica mentioned, is really an exciting new business model in this space. The other question that is one of our favorite questions that we like to ask all of our guests is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? That's a great question. As as Margo was just saying, you know, women's health is vastly underserved, right? Unfortunately, even though we're half the population, we seem to sort of be an an afterthought. And when many people think about women's health care, they only focus on reproductive health care and don't think about kind of all of the other aspects. But I think here at Medicines 360, what has really, you know, informed my purpose and sharpened that for me is as a female OBGYN, the number one choice of birth control for female OBGYNs are hormonal IUDs. If you ask them, hey, what what do you want to use or what do you use? It's hormonal IUDs. And that is predominantly a very educated population, right? Female OBGYNs. And what we found before we got started at Medicines 360 is that Young women, women of color, uneducated women, women living below the poverty line did not have those choices, nor nor did they know their options. And so one of the things that we've really done here at Medicine 360 is tried to provide equity when we're accessing birth control to make sure that all women have access to all forms of birth control and that the most effective methods aren't only available to educated women, but are also available to women of color, women who are uneducated, all all of those women. And that's really what we do here. That's how we, what we got started to do is to make sure that the most effective forms of birth control are available to all women. And I I take similar um, motivation, I think, just picking up on the description of Peace Corps and living in this place where the resources available to people, not only the people, but women and children are just very, very few. And and really having that in my head is the almost my heart motivation is motivated by those women. And then my head, when I layer that in and the data that we know about disparities in access to birth control, and even in the U.S., that's continued motivation. And Jessica said, in terms of addressing equity and justice and centering birth control as a topic well within the women's health topic, but also just about how women live their lives. I mean, we know it's connected to economic opportunities, educational opportunities. And if we as a society want to eliminate some of these really glaring disparities, I mean, to me, it's fundamental to those things that we have to address just as a human <laughs> as a human population. And what's also motivates me and all of the work that I've done and all of the countries where I've worked is that 
and this sounds very cheesy, but uh, women are women all over the world. And yes, we're mm-hmm. different, different cultures, different religions, different societal structures, different genders. I mean, I know that sounds very gender specific, but it's it's amazing what you can find in terms of commonalities and in terms of you know common challenges to talking about birth control. And you know that's something that we want to share with you today. But I think that's super motivating and thinking about what can I learn about other countries and how they think and live and then apply that even in my own country and some of the states in this country as well. So a lot of work to be done, but really grounded by the women that we've met probably very early on. Yeah. And just one more thing that I wanted to say there, you know, one of the things that really motivates both of us and motivates us in this organization is here we are today in 2020 and both in the U.S. and around the world, too many women are still facing barriers accessing the medicines they need. And many of the existing systems and structures that exist today, and forget about how much all of that has changed in the pandemic, but many of what exists today end up restricting access and choice for women rather than enabling it. And so we find one of the amazing tools that we have as a both a nonprofit and a pharmaceutical organization is we have the ability to focus our efforts on women in need. And and so we're able to use kind of some of the traditional pharma tools to use research and development, product development, the FDA approval process, clinical trials to make a change potentially in women's lives. So that's kind of one of the really exciting things about what we get to do every day. No, this is really interesting. And and I'll admit, I think when Sefi and I, when y'all both reached out to us, it was really confusing to see the words pharma and nonprofit right next to each other. And so it was certainly something that I was like, ooh. I was like, that's a thing. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so we're like, wow, well, we'll give them a call and just, just see how this goes. And so we're really interested to share your perspective because I think there's probably a lot of our listeners who are like, nonprofit pharma because the word pharma has so much stigma with it. Yeah, I'd love Margo for for you to talk about that and thank you guys for giving us a try because even like I approached Margo to come work for us a, a little over a year ago and she too was like, "Wait a second. What are you talking about? You guys pharma? But wait, you're a nonprofit too?" So, Margo, what has that been like for you and what do you what did you see kind of coming in and seeing it firsthand? I think that it, what it does is it brings us uh, the best aspects of both. Really, the the pharma part, what I've come to appreciate, as much as we do talk about big pharma and pharma, and it's obviously all over the news in terms of drug pricing, the pharmaceutical industry does amazingly important and wonderful things. I mean, we look at the news today about the pandemic vaccines that may be available soon and all of the work and effort that's gone into developing those. And as a non-pharma person myself and as a non-scientist, science person, I have really appreciated the enormous effort that goes into developing products and pharmaceuticals. So we have the best part of that. So that's the the science part. And we have experts on our team. And obviously, under Jessica's leadership have really brought to the field, I think, really top-notch quality clinical evidence. As a nonprofit, as a 501c3 public charity, we have this opportunity to not only do we not have shareholders, so we're not beholden to shareholders whose interest is to maximize 
maximize profits, but we have an obligation by the fact that we're tax-free, right? We get a tax break from the government and we have an obligation then to really provide a public benefit. So I think it means we can provide transparency to a space that really doesn't have a lot of transparency. I think we can all admit that. I think we think that we have a platform not only to educate women about things like birth control, but also to educate the broader sector about what it really takes to bring a product to market uh, through the processes that we have, at least in the U.S., and then you know share that so that there can be a, a livelier dialogue <laughs> about the broader sector and drug pricing and all of the challenges that this country faces in the health system. So it is challenging to explain what a nonprofit pharma is. And your, your brain does kind of get confused in the middle and get smashed in the middle about what that is. And part of the work that I've been really loving doing with Jessica and the other leadership here at Medicine 360 is figuring out how do we tell that story and what does that mean for the broader field of women's health? But it's it's really an inspiring place to be, especially I think at this moment when there's a lot of need for innovation across the health sector. Innovation and transparency. I think that's a really big thing. And I think that's something that really stuck out to me. And I think you did a fabulous job explaining it. And then especially really the part about a nonprofit is the transparency piece that I think the world could just really use right now. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So like we said, we're going to talk about contraceptive care during COVID. So let's jump right in. So what are some challenges in general that you see when it comes to accessing birth control? Well, that is such a good question, which is very near and dear to our hearts here at Medicines 360. And one of the things that we've we've done is we actually did a series both in 2019 and then again in 2020 of national surveys of women uh, aged 18 to, to 34 to ask them what their barriers are, right? We, you know, me as a physician, Margo, as, as someone who's been working in, in public health for many years, we all know cost can be a barrier. We all know that location, you know, your insurance status, but we wanted to ask women and meet them where they were. And we actually did get some surprising results. And then we did it in 2019. And then we did it just recently to compare how things had changed during the pandemic. And this is based on a national survey that we did. And then we've done a whole educational uh, campaign around it called Not Awkward. So, Margot, I'll let you, will you talk a little bit about the survey and what we found? Sure. I think the survey, what was interesting, too, between the two years, even though, as Jessica said, we did it again in 2020 and we had the pandemic layered on top of that 2020, the 2020 results, the findings were pretty similar. So things haven't really improved, not surprising, given the pandemic, but they, they, there is a lot of work that we have to do in this field. So one of the most striking findings, I think, is that one in three women when accessing birth control find that they say that they feel awkward. They feel awkward in talking about it. They feel awkward in asking for what they need. They feel awkward and even asking basic questions about like what type, what, you know, what are the methods that are available to me? The top three reasons that people felt that faced barriers in accessing birth control were feeling awkward and and talking about it, cost. And as Jessica said, that's something that we at Medicine 360 think about a lot. And then information about what their options are. And if I think about that, that's two out of the three top barriers that are, have to do with both sort of communication and education. And so that's both, I think, frustrating to think about in the year 2020, when a lot of us that have been working in this field for many years feel like we maybe should be further along. 
I think there's a lot of opportunity in that as well, right? Those are things that in theory we can solve. We can figure out how to talk to women differently about their options. We can figure out how to educate women about their options and hopefully make women feel more comfortable having that conversation with their provider. So those are some of the things that that really stuck out in this survey. I think the other thing that that goes back to the question we were talking about regarding equity is that we found a disparity between, you know, how women of color felt about their barriers versus white women. In particular, Latina women were facing are facing more barriers to accessing birth control. And that that is something that we have to you know, this this is a national survey that we did. As Jessica said, women 18 to 34, so it doesn't necessarily represent all women. But I can imagine that those findings probably we can extrapolate to some of the older women that we didn't talk to. But I think those are really important things that it's obviously not a one size fits all solution. <laughs> but what I would think that we are is really very curious, empathetic, obsessed with figuring out this equity question and just being mindful of it and knowing that we all have blind spots that we bring to this work. And every woman's experience is different when they go in to talk to a healthcare provider. And how can we really arm healthcare providers to have a more empathetic, curious conversation so that they can find out where women are, what their particular, not hangups, but like concerns might be about what they would ask about, what they really are uncomfortable talking about and have better conversations. Well, you hit some nerd language with us. We would love to know what those disparities were. Yeah, well, we can tell you. So Latina women were more likely to report barriers to access. 61% of Latina women said they had barriers to access to birth control versus 54% of all women. So it was 7% higher in Latina women. The other kind of, to get more specific, of all the women who faced barriers to accessing birth control, the top reasons that those women cited were feeling uncomfortable. 39% felt uncomfortable just just having an open conversation. 31% cited cost. And then uh, this is a huge number, a whopping 29% of women did not know their options. And if you would have asked me before this, if you said, oh, how many women do you think don't know what what all their options are? I would have said, oh, you know, maybe 10% don't know, but most women have a general sense. We found that a huge amount of women only know about the birth control pill. They know about the birth control pill and condoms, and that's it. They've literally never heard of anything else. So we have found that one of the things that we can do, and it may seem like a small thing, but it's actually been quite successful, is is sort of just a grassroots campaign on social media, which we call hashtag not awkward. And we won some different kind of social media awards on this and kind of in the healthcare and pharma space to encourage women to have those open conversations. If you go to the website, hashtag not awkward, it just has like, it's a place for, for women to share what's going on with them. And there's some funny videos of like what it feels like to be in the doctor's office when you're trying to get birth control. So we're really trying to, to humanize the fact that guess what? Almost all women, 99% of women are on birth control at some point in their life right? That's a huge number. And many of those women are on birth control for decades, right? It's not just like, oh, it's a year, decades we're trying to not get pregnant, right? So, I mean, this is something that we definitely have to deal with and we have to be talking about. And then I think the other thing that we have found during the pandemic is because there is so much 
news about the pandemic, we've really felt like the the conversation around reproductive health care in the pandemic was getting lost. And yes, the healthcare system is overwhelmed. Obviously, transportation is either not happening or difficult to come by. Childcare services are closed. An unprecedented amount of women are finding themselves out of work or at home doing their childcare full time. But we also wanted to bring to bear the, the voice that reproductive health services are essential and accessing them should be a right, not a privilege for women around the, go- the globe. And that access to reproductive health care should be happening even during a global pandemic. And there's ways to do it safely. There's ways to do it masked. So we wanted to really make sure that that message got out there. So I'll let I'll let Margo talk a little bit more about that, too. And I think the other thing that Jessica has done a, a great job herself this year of talking about the fact that reproductive health care is essential. You know, a lot of our the people that we're trying to serve with Medicines 360 are in the safety net clinics across the country. And a lot of those clinics stopped providing services at the beginning of the pandemic because some of those services were considered non-essential. And those clinics really rely on the revenue of some of the more non-essential services. So I think the impact to reproductive health services and birth control really um, is determined by the overall health of those clinics. And we really, there is research underway right now to try and understand the impact of uh, the pandemic on birth control specifically. We don't know what those data will show, but you can only imagine that because women may not have had physical access for several months to the clinics that they counted on. And the fact that some of those clinics actually went away altogether, that it's really going to have this lagged effect probably for years, unfortunately, in terms of the women who uh, either don't have insurance, are living in more rural areas, are Medicaid patients, or just like to go to a public clinic. One of the other things that that I wanted to say that I, I do worry about in the pandemic with what happened at the beginning of the clinic shutting down I think it's been amazing that we have transitioned to telemedicine and many women have gotten access to birth control online or through a a mail order type clinic or service. But what I worry about there is, although, you know, those are amazing services and I'm grateful for them and I'm glad they're there, those primarily offer shorter acting methods, right? Like the pill the patch, the ring. And there's nothing wrong with those methods. They're great methods, but they're not the most effective methods. And I do worry that are we going to have some backlash right after the pandemic is over in resulting unintended pregnancies because women were not necessarily either not using a method or using a less effective method or and not going to see a healthcare provider and really getting contra- quality contraceptive counseling. So I think that the results of that will remain to be seen, but that is one of the things that I do worry about. I think the other thing that people worry about in the U.S. and also in tracking what's happening in some of the countries in Africa, for example, is if women are not going to facilities to get birth control, are they also not going to get regular health care for themselves and also maybe immunization for their kids or the other things that actually would take women to interact with the healthcare system? And I know there's probably a lot of researchers out there also thinking about that question of what is the impact on overall women's health care if you're not interacting for your basic needs, such as birth control. And that's, I think that's 
that's something that we'll have to really work on as a field. The other thing that we think about a little bit that I haven't heard as much talked about in terms of telemedicine, and if I just think about what we're doing now and what we do sort of as a day-to-day work situation where we're all on Zoom or whatever platform we're using to do video calls is if I'm trying to have a conversation about birth control, it's already awkward, we've said. <laughs> we've already found it's awkward. How do you do that in a in a home setting, for example, with like maybe kids running around or partners running around or pets? I mean, the privacy considerations, I think, around these kinds of conversations don't they don't really lend themselves as well to telemedicine, potentially. There's probably a lot of work to be done to innovate around how you do that discreetly and privately. But that's something I think in this immediate period where we're still in the pandemic and basically overnight everyone transitioned to telemedicine who can do that for the kinds of services that are that are applicable for telemedicine. Like, how does that work if I'm sitting in my house and I've got lots of people around me and I already don't want to talk about my birth control options? So let's talk about to our clinicians, which is most of our listeners, what kind of advice would you give them about trying to navigate contraceptive care and counseling during this time? Like you talked about telemedicine. Do you have any thoughts about some of these innovations or or ways around it at, at this time? I would say one of the things I, I don't like giving advice to healthcare providers because I feel like they know, hopefully know their patients and, and know what they're trying to accomplish better than I do. I would say that I was a little shocked at how many women in our surveys that we've done are incredibly uncomfortable in talking about their birth control options. Don't bring it up. Feel like there's stigma associated with it. Feel like they're going to be judged. And so I think for all clinicians to really keep that in mind and try to have a really open, uh, non-judgmental conversation with their patients about what their options are and, and to try to just elicit from them how they're feeling about their reproductive health in general. But I also know that healthcare providers are incredibly busy during this time. And so I think we're trying to sort of create uh, some content that both providers and the women that they serve can access to kind of help break down some of those barriers and to help really be an educational resource that, that people can look at. And that was some of the work that we did around this series of webinars in the pandemic. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Marco? Because I think that is potentially a resource that HCPs could go to and also to send their patients to. Yeah, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I think one thing that we felt, and I imagine this is something commonly felt across the healthcare sector, was how are we going to really interact with the people we're trying to serve? How will we hear from them? How will we reach them? And so we came up with the idea of doing a series of webinars. And I think that's a tool that a lot of us have used. And these have been really effective. And the first one was called Birth Control Amid COVID-19. And we had a physician partner of ours do a, a chat, fireside chat with Jessica about where can women really go to get information resources about in this moment, in this pandemic. And this was early. This was, I think, Jessica, back in May or so. So it was very early in the pandemic in terms of really providing concrete information and uh, websites and resources and tips of where women could go in the pandemic to get birth control. 
And then what we were surprised by was, as Jessica was saying, we still got a lot of questions in the chat and also being asked of the presenters about other methods. And and it was pretty clear that even some of the women participating in the webinar didn't know all of the methods available to them and that there are 18 methods that the FDA has approved for women of modern contraception. And how is it that, as Jessica said earlier, we only know, most women only know of a couple of them. That has to be something that we can overcome. So because of that, we designed a second webinar that was really about these 18 methods. And we did this in partnership with a group called Power to Decide. I don't know if either of you have heard of them. Great organization, advocacy organization based out of D.C., nationally focused on trying to increase access and use of birth control. And, and we had a really great conversation with their interim CEO and Jessica about how what are these methods, how do they work, where can you get them, how effective are they, and really walking through each one. So I think that was hopefully a value to the people participating And then it was interesting in that webinar, we got some questions about sort of what is this context that we're living in, both from a policy perspective and and from a legal perspective, even of how women can access uh, birth control methods and what are our rights as women in terms of getting access to birth control. So the third webinar we did in partnership with a group called HMA, Health Management Associates, the National Women's Law Center and the Center for American Progress. And it was a webinar called Understanding Your Rights and Options. And it really walked through in a pretty practical way what both for healthcare providers and also some consumers that might have been participating, what are your rights in terms of birth control and where, you know, what are the payment options that you have, including reimbursement, how does Medicaid work, and and hopefully gave people some pretty concrete ideas of how to overcome some of those barriers from a rights perspective. And as as Jessica said, those are on our social media. We can um, provide that information to you guys that you can share out through your podcast at at Medicine360 is our handle on on Instagram and LinkedIn. And, And those webinars are available in those ways. Do you guys like answer my questions as I'm about to ask them? <laughs> so you're really, <laughs> you're really good at that. <laughs> yeah, I was about to ask, how do they find them? And is there a cost? And no cost, they're all free. Transparency and public benefit. Actually, to be honest, we hadn't done a lot of publicly facing for healthcare providers and for consumers, potentially this type of work. But I really was struck when the pandemic started. There were started. There were all of these voices around the pandemic. But I really felt like women were getting left behind. And in March, April, May, June, also a lot of women who were are typically care providers in sort of their waitresses or bartenders or baristas or working in the daycare center we're also losing their jobs, right? And so we had quite a bit of information there of like, where can I get free healthcare? You know, how do I look up online and how do I trust sources online of of what's going to be a good source? And so, so I was really thrilled that we had the opportunity to to do this work. And we, our goal is to make sure that that information is out there, available. It's free, and it's it's very practical. It's not it's, it in no way substitutes for a conversation with a healthcare provider, but it's just meant to like give you some basics, so then you can go talk to a healthcare provider, find places where you can access free healthcare, like at a federally qualified health center or a community health clinic. So it's meant to be, it's not an exhaustive list of topics, but it's meant to be kind of a primer and a starter for some basic facts and some basic information for for both women and healthcare providers. 
So two things. One, I mean, the folks you partnered with for those webinars are some big players. I mean, these are the power to decide. Were, were they formally? The national campaign. Yes, to prevent teen and unplanned pregnancy. Okay, that's yeah. Right. I mean, those. that's a big, that's big. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that's awesome. And then, so you talked about this clinic locator. So I'm just wondering then, can you speak a little bit more about that? Is that something that's on your website? And then maybe any other tips that you have for maybe our non-clinician listeners in trying to navigate contraceptive care during this time? Sure. Why don't I tackle, Margo, the clinic locator, and then you can talk about uh, non-clinician listeners. So on our website, medicine360.org, There is a clinic locator button. I believe it's under the women tab. And it's sort of like a little button that says find a clinic near me and you can put in your zip code. And it will show you where there is a public health clinic. So like a Planned Parenthood, a federally qualified health center, a clinic that serves women who either are uninsured, have Medicaid, et cetera. It will show them where that clinic is in regards to their location. And it will also show them if there is access to affordable birth control at that clinic. And and because again, that's something that we really care about is, is the affordability question. So we have that on our website. It's updated, I would say, because we're constantly sort of getting in new, new information. So it's updated, I would say, probably quarterly with different clinic sites. And so that's a great resource. Again, it's free. <laughs> Use it if you want. And that's something also we partner with Power to Decide on. We actually get some of their data and integrate it with our own data to show the, the clinic locator that Jessica's talking about. In addition to that, there's some been some great work in the last like five to 10 years about how to almost demedicalize birth control and really describe it in a way, particularly for young people where it's more fun. It's like a little bit more lifestyle focused. And one of the great resources that we use is called bedsider.org. I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with it, but it's really a wonderful resource to talk about the methods of birth control. What are they? How many are there? Even specific brand names, where you can get them, how much they typically cost. But then there's also a great article on that website about getting birth control online and where you can get the pill, the patch, the ring in ways that you can get just delivered to your your house, which is obviously in the pandemic, really a very convenient service for women who might want those methods. So we really recommend bedsider.org. That's also a power to decide resource. (laughs) We think highly of their work. Another uh, resource on the pill, there's been a lot of work also in the last five to 10 years to get the, the federal government to get the pill more easily accessible to women so that you don't have to always go to a doctor's office and get a monthly prescription for your pills. So there's a website called freethepill.org, and they can tell you also about getting the pill online and how you, there are several different companies and apps right now that are offering app-based pill delivery if, if women are interested in that. And I think another, finally, a resource is about health centers that offer discounted services for women Particularly, there are a lot of women who lost their jobs in the pandemic. And for those women whose insurance is tied to their employment and who may not qualify for something like Medicaid and and may face these cost barriers to getting birth control, there's a website that the government, the federal government runs called findahealthcenter.hrsa.gov. And we can provide that website to you guys, but it's findahealthcenter, all one word, .hrsa.gov. 
And that uh, website does tell you where to find things like the federally qualified health centers and other places that might offer discounted care, sometimes even free to women if they don't have insurance for birth control. But again, it's really kind of a maze, right, of how to figure out the right way to, to get these resources. And we feel like as, the, as a nonprofit in this space with a pharma bent, that we really have a responsibility to provide this kind of information transparently to women, particularly right now, always, but especially right now. Yeah, I know, like, I'm on the board of directors for a little family planning clinic who provides birth control and abortions, and they've basically stopped all their quote-unquote well-woman exams or GYN care. Now, obviously, they're still trying to prescribe medications because they do hormones for trans people, but I start to wonder at what point we start getting worried about IUDs and and implants. I'm sure that there, it looks like there's some data that they last longer than sometimes the FDA has approved them for, but it's like going so long. (laughs) Right. And what if you're a woman who actually wants to get pregnant right now and wants to get that method removed? How does she do that? And that's, I think, this overall message that we really want to emphasize that reproductive health is essential health care. This is not something that's a nice to have. It's for many women, and maybe I'd say most women, it's a must-have. It really allows us to live the lives that we're leading right now and decide when and if we want to have children. And so if you have an IUD, I I, I was sort of thinking in the beginning of the the pandemic, like if you went into the pandemic and you had an IUD, for example, you're you're kind of happy if you didn't want to get pregnant. You're like, great. (laughs) I'm not worried about, you know, refills or going to a clinic. But if you didn't have one and you wanted something that was going to be very effective that didn't, where you didn't have to interact with the healthcare system, you're pretty challenged if your local clinic, like the one you're describing, has stopped providing those well-women services. And so, yeah, I think that the more we can do from an advocacy perspective to talk about these challenges, I think the better. So it's been interesting to see how healthcare is changing with the OB-GYN world as a result of COVID. And I think y'all have highlighted many of them. And with many of these changes, some, some of them are for the better, like really trying to increase accessibility in alternative ways, like especially through telehealth, for example. So like what kind of quote unquote barriers have you seen be removed as a result of the pandemic? And how do you envision contraceptive counseling or access changing post-COVID? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I do think telehealth and even the access to abortion pills in a telehealth manner in some states has been really amazing. And some of the barriers that were lifted around the REMS with the FDA. And I hope that some of those can stay in place. I think the other thing that's going to be interesting is, right, hopefully um, we're also going to be changing administrations here soon, right? So it's going to be interesting to see how a lot of these changes either increase or stay in place post-pandemic because of uh, a different administration in in the White House. So I think it'll also be interesting, like, how do we then tease that apart? But I think one of the things that I really hope is is here to stay is healthcare providers' desire to meet women where they are, no matter what that is. So if, if it's telehealth, if it's in office, know that that everyone is incredibly busy. But I hope that this can give us all, you know, a renewed focus on breaking down some of those barriers and really having empathy for our patients, especially as a lot of women ha- are out of work 
are having to work from home and multitask on, you know, schooling their kids while they're also doing a Zoom conference call, you know, all of these things. I can't tell you, you know, how many other women CEOs I have been on a video call with and their kids are in the background and they're, oh, I'm sorry. I said, don't worry, mine's right here too. So so I think hopefully also we can all have a bit more empathy with each other because this time has been hard, right? And and there's just been a lot of fatigue. I think all of our resilience is low, right? When you're sort of o- operating in crisis mode for months and months at a time, uh, and there's no way to get away, there's no way to go on vacation, there's no breaks in sight. I think, you know, a lot of us can just feel stressed and stretched to the max. And so I hope that we'll also, the flip side of that is that then can we all be a little kinder and gentler with each other. Yeah, I actually just sent uh, Stephanie and our other friend April a text today that said, are chill pills and therapy working or is the pandemic just crushing everybody? (laughs) (laughs) I think it remains to be seen. I don't know that we know the answer yet. Trying different, trying different revenues. Yeah, I think the pandemic has been incredibly humanizing. And I think for, for the healthcare system, and I'm, again, not a provider myself, but I think that it's really, and to Jessica's example, female CEOs, and even I had a Zoom call yesterday with my dad and mom with one of his providers, and the the nurse practitioner's cat was in the background. And it just brings this much more of a human face to healthcare. And I think when we're talking about birth control, and we're talking about the fact that a lot of women find it awkward, what better way to kind of break down barriers really quickly than to immediately get on a video call with somebody who might be in their home? And so potentially for this area of women's health care, it potentially could break down some of those communications barriers and maybe even accelerate almost a, I don't want to say a demedicalization to get it out of the healthcare system, but a less of a medical focus on this experience. Because talking about your, your reproductive life and your, your sex life with your provider and the fact that you know you either don't have kids or want kids or whatever your choices might be, if we can humanize that experience for people while maintaining a high quality of service, I mean, I'm not suggesting you trade off the quality of care and the safety of care, but I think that telemedicine experience has really shown that there was a huge barrier in place forever, right, that prevented doctors from being able to do telemedicine, largely because the reimbursement rules <laughs> meant that they couldn't get paid for those services. And overnight, the pandemic changed that. I mean, there was that policy change way back in whatever it was, April. And really, the whatever you want to say, the train has left the station on it. It's not going back into the barn or the station. I mean, we're, we're in a new telemedicine world. And I think, as we said earlier, the one sort of flag that I would have for, for birth control and for women's health is, does it either push women into these methods of birth control that do are tend to be less effective, largely because like a pill, you have to remember to take it every day and you have to take it at the same time every day. And that may not be the best option for women long term. So I just really hope we can figure out how to strike the balance for Providing counseling over on in an online setting versus, as Jessica said, if a woman wants to go in and talk to her provider and get an IUD or an implant, that she can do that. So obviously, like you said, telehealth, it's like left the station. We're not going back. How do you envision just contraceptive counseling and access changing post-COVID? That's a great question, Stephanie. And, you know, Margot and I were just chatting about this is that there's some new apps and some new kind of AI and bots, which I don't know very much about. I must admit that's out there. But Margot was just previewing one of those technologies. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because it sounded really cool. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's a company called Nivi, and it is an app that does birth control counseling. And it's being piloted right now in a couple of countries outside the U.S., but there's nothing about it that can't be for the United States as well, because as we said, women are women, girls are girls all over the place. But it basically uses AI in the background so that girls um, and women ask a question on the on the chat bot for the app about birth control. And it uses um, algorithms and, you know, behind the scenes stuff that happens that gives women the information. And the other thing that's interesting is it collects that data about the questions that people are asking on the app. And it, it's, so this is a, a for-profit company and they kind of package those insights of what people are asking about, what questions and concerns they have. And it shares it then with nonprofits who are serving women in reproductive health. So it's on the one side, giving advice to a patient and a, and a person who wants birth control. And on the other side, it's sharing with the organizations trying to serve those women. Hey, here's what they're asking. Here's what they care about. Here's what they're concerned about. And so I think using technology in that way is really exciting. And, you know, I'm also kind of a skeptic that apps like don't solve everything. We, <laughs> Jessica and I sit here in the middle of Silicon Valley and you know, the, the joke in Silicon Valley is there's an app for that. And I don't really think that we have to go to that extreme to only do counseling over apps. I think one other area, and Jessica can fill me in on this too, but I think that there may be a possibility that women, instead of having to have a counseling visit, let's say for a long acting method, where it typically might happen in two visits, like she goes in, talks about her options, talks about the 18 methods, hopefully <laughs> selects one that's going to have to require another visit where she actually gets either the implant or the IUD, or maybe she even chooses a tubal ligation. It's possible that with telemedicine that we can do that counseling interaction in a way that's online, and then she comes in for the actual visit. And that, you know, that obviously saves costs to her in terms of transport and time. Um, hopefully it saves the health system costs as well, because you don't have to do two actual in-person visits for women. But I think that's certainly something that's being talked about and whether that that really works, um, I think that remains to be seen. My one little concern on that too is can you get women in a place where they feel comfortable enough in a private setting to have that conversation that hopefully isn't awkward with their provider if it's over telemedicine? I think that's all really interesting. I mean, I know we've had some conversations on other podcasts about this whole, you know, having multiple visits, having to come mm -hmm. back for an IUD. And I actually experienced that. Well, with my first IUD, oh, geez, almost eight years ago with my first, and it's probably eight years ago with my first one. <laughs> and I had to push to get it that day. And it's like, mm -hmm. I don't have time to come back. Like I've taken off work. And at that point I was transitioning, like living in Minnesota and moving to Wisconsin and starting new job. You know, there was a lot of things happening. It's like, this is not a reality for me to just be able to come back. The reason I want an IUD is because I want to just not have to worry about all these moving pieces that come with refills and, and da, 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 da. And so, and that was, I could tell that I made my provider uncomfortable to do that in that same day because they really wanted me to think about it and then come back and say, like, well, I already thought about it. That's why I'm here today. <laughs> so I don't need to come back. So I think that that's really interesting. I think the other thread that I keep hearing from a lot of what you're saying is how much of this is tied to policy and mm -hmm. that maybe 
that folks aren't necessarily aware of how much of this is tied to policy, especially when you think of the future of our healthcare system and the fact that our insurance is tied to our employment and how detrimental that is. And especially, and I think the pandemic, as you said, has really highlighted that is when you lose your job and then you lose your insurance and then what? And mm-hmm. that's just not a space that we should have to be navigating. And that's completely a policy issue. And then I think you really go back to, and I know this is something that's really near and dear to my heart. And I know to Stephanie's as well, it's just this basic sex education policies. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we aren't even educating folks, kids about their bodies and what their options are. And so there's just so much of what you're talking about that is tied to policy. And and I, too, am interested with the administration change, with the pandemic, how much of those policies will shift in a positive way to aid in, in access, affordability, education, all of these pieces. I hear you. But I think I agree with you how incredibly important it is. And, you know, we also do do some policy work here at Medicine 360. One of the things we've been really interested in in expanding access to long-acting and reversible contraception, there are a lot of policy blockers there as well. A lot of the federally qualified health centers that we were talking about have a prospective payment system so that physicians only get paid sort of a set amount for each visit, which makes it almost impossible for them to provide long-acting and reversible contraceptives. So we've been doing some work on trying to unbundle those payments. So I think one of the really unique things about being who we are and the work that we do at Medicine 360, and to go back to kind of the pharma aspect, is we have the potential and ability to do all these pharma things for good. And I think the Affordable Care Act really was a tremendous step forward for birth control access. You know, it really, it provided contraceptive care for free for women who had employer-based insurance. And that was a huge, huge win for women in that act. The extent that that's under, it's in the Supreme Court right now. So we'll see what happens, but that's a huge deal. And it it became pretty clear the minute the pandemic started and and people lost their jobs. And remember when it was back in March and April, people lost their jobs like en masse. It was dramatic if we can all cast our minds back. It was weekly unemployment claims of like a million, you know, huge numbers of people losing their jobs at a really rapid pace. And what we kept thinking was like, oh my goodness, all these women are losing their insurance and that means their health, their birth control is no longer free. And again, there's a lot of women that fall into a gap where they don't actually then qualify for Medicaid, where they, where they could get birth control for free as well, or at least at a reduced price. And so that's a, that's a massive deal. And you're absolutely right that policy So unfortunately or fortunately really drives a lot of how we get services. And a lot of it, as Jessica said, does have to do with reimbursement rates, which are pretty wonky and super technical and, you know, really boring and boring. But they make a huge difference. And the other thing that we have, of course, as a country is we have 50 states with 50 state Medicaid policies that pay for these, these things differently. So as Jessica mentioned, one of the things that we do is we have a couple of policy projects right now where we're working with individual states to understand how their reimbursement policies affect how women get particularly access to long-acting methods. And if we can convince them to change those policies so that it incentivizes both the providers and the clinics to offer those long-acting methods, then can we use that 
sort of case story to convince other states as well. But that's a that's a laborious process because <laughs> we have this at the state level. You know, I think that's a whole other layer in the U.S. that that does, fortunately, unfortunately, add a whole other equity question for women. Right? It really does. It does depend on where you live. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Like, I remember when I was pregnant with my second child and having that conversation with my OB, she was telling me at my 38-week or whatever appointment, like, hey, do you want a tubal ligation? Because if you do, I need to consent you today. It's like, why? And I had no idea that Medicaid wouldn't reimburse which I didn't have Medicaid, but they just do it for everybody. Like Medicaid won't reimburse for a tubal ligation if you don't have like 30 days between the consent and the actual date. It's very patriarchal policy <laughs> that women have really thought about it, like that they don't want to have children anymore. But, and I was like, this was only a few years ago that I was learning this and I have worked in women's health for so long. <laughs> so things like that, And then if you can imagine like during COVID where people aren't really having prenatal care like they usually do, I'm just wondering what things are going to look like in a few months and in a year from now as far as unplanned pregnancies. Yeah, I think we can expect pretty safely that they're going to increase, unfortunately, even though the data has been really great over the last five years in terms of decreasing that rate. It doesn't seem, it seems like a logical thing to expect that it will increase. Hopefully not too much because we do have these things that we've talked about in terms of women being able to get methods online. But I just think if you're somebody that's already facing a barrier, maybe you're a person of color, maybe you're just, you, you don't know how to approach this because your school didn't talk to you about sex or reproductive health and your church doesn't talk about it and your family doesn't talk about it. Or if you're already experiencing those things, you can only imagine in the pandemic that those barriers are even higher right now. There's no way to think that you're you're really better off. I do think, I mean, if my optimistic self stays in the space though of creativity and opportunity and the fact that we've seen this overnight shift to telemedicine and all of a sudden healthcare providers around the country had to figure out Zoom and whatever platforms they're using, like our teachers did as well. And that that spirit of adaptability and creativity and and hopefully then applying it to meeting people where they are and particularly where, where women are, hopefully will improve things in the long run. But I think there's no doubt that in the short term, there's going to be an impact in terms of unplanned pregnancies and, and women not having the methods that they want right now. So you've mentioned the clinic locator, some policy work. What are some other things, if there are some, oh, and the webinars, don't won't forget about those, that Medicine360 has been doing to increase access to contraceptives right now? We have these customer engagement folks that work with us and they are located around the country. And so what they do is they work with the individual clinics to make sure that the clinics have access not only to our product, but to whatever they need to be providing long-acting and reversible contraceptives to their patients. The other thing that we've been doing is we do a lot of conferences around the country. So we do the National Family Planning Conference. We'll do Title X conferences in states. We do the Plant Parenthood Medical Directors Conference. But a lot of those obviously haven't been happening because of the pandemic, but they have been happening virtually. And we've been able to pivot and do kind of a virtual online platform to showcase both our product and our organization at those conferences. The other thing that we've been doing a lot of is product demonstrations, because 
it's great to have access to a hormonal IUD, but you also need to know how to use them. And our customer engagement folks do a lot of that. So we've been doing that on Zoom as well. Margo, anything to add? Yeah, I just had a couple things. One, I think the the customer engagement team, which as Jessica said, is really our, for lack of a better word, boots on the ground. They're people who are going into these safety net clinics, talking to providers, talking about the broader um, importance of, of long-acting re- reversible methods of contraception. And what we're thinking about for next year, particularly in the context of the pandemic, is how can we use that that team uh, use that, them as an asset to understand the barriers that both the providers and the patients are facing because they're actually speaking with people. They're speaking with clinics. And I think that's different than, you know, there are a lot of pharmaceutical organizations who obviously go in and out of clinics. But again, because we're a 501c3 mission-based nonprofit organization with a, with a real drive to solve equity questions for women, we can ask questions that maybe others wouldn't ask and then figure out if we can design programming around that. One idea we've had, and this actually I can't take credit for, Jessica can, can talk more about it, was can we improve our, our training for healthcare providers and maybe do more remote training? Like, is there a training in a box that you could send to a clinic either in a remote area or just in an area that we can't get to? on a regular basis that would have some remote learning resources for them and even actual interaction with our customer engagement team. So that's, I think, a space where we really want to innovate around. And then on a national level, what's really exciting too is we're a part of a handful of organizations that are nonprofit pharma organizations. And so there's a small kind of burgeoning coalition of organizations that are trying to advocate for better policy that supports nonprofit pharma as a concept. <laughs> and so, and that's everything from boring things like a tax status, but also, you know, I think more importantly, what are the policies that the federal government can help put in place that would make it more likely that an organization could organize or form as a nonprofit pharma organization as opposed to for-profit? And that's, you know, not only in the women's health space, but that could have benefits for the for the overall health sector because it could potentially lower drug prices. So you talk a lot about policy work you're doing and maybe for our listeners who want to do a little bit of advocacy work, what are maybe some like local policies or even state policies that you've seen that have really moved the needle a lot when it comes to like removing barriers or increasing access that maybe they could advocate for within their systems or even Mm -hmm. within their states? One of the things that I was talking about is this issue around unbundling the reimbursement for LARCs from the FQHC prospective payment system. I know that is like a total handful and very wonky, but it means splitting apart the way that the actual device, the either the IUD or the implant is reimbursed and it's actually reimbursed at cost instead of in the prospective payment system. Many states have already passed that legislation, New York, California, where we live, but there's still many that have not as well. Georgia just passed it and has done actually quite well with that. We're looking at Nevada has not. Uh, Arizona and Florida. So that's yeah. just a way for women, Florida, Nevada, and Arizona to be able to access LARCs more equitably at, at federally qualified health centers. The other thing is states that don't have a family planning program or a family planning waiver should try to get one. And, and probably if you're in one of those states that don't have one, you know who, who you are. But that's a way for women who 
potentially are accessing birth control to receive insurance for that birth control. Even though it's mandated at the federal level with the Affordable Care Act, there are many states who don't have any state policies. So that's another great one. So for our listeners who want to get a little bit more information about you all, could you give us your website? Our website is medicines360.org. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Medicines360. And then women can tell their own stories or providers can share stories as well on our uh, social media campaign called hashtag not awkward, which is on Instagram and Twitter. And both Margot and I are both on LinkedIn too, if you want to connect with us. Awesome. Thank you. So I would personally like to thank you both so much for your time and your commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end? I'm going to add that, uh, as we've said many times, I think it's really worth emphasizing that reproductive health is an essential health care uh, service, and it's really a woman's right. It has so many connections to, again, women's economic abilities to be productive, to getting education, to just being generally more in control of their lives, that really we have to be firm on that. And for anyone out there who wants to advocate for something, I'd say let's advocate for that. That's that's a great point. Yeah, I totally agree. Women's health care access and reproductive healthcare access is essential and it's a right. And please do check us out on medicines360.org. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you both so much for your time today. Thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Mm-hmm.